praying for uh, for Kay. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 22, and uh, we'll see how far we can go today. We'll sort of play it by ear since this was a special day, okay? And we're going to be looking at the Last Supper. Now, when I mention the Last Supper, our tendency is to study that sort of uh, by itself, and we look at the Last Supper and we glean information from it as if this event happened in a vacuum. This event did not happen in a vacuum. Uh, what's happening when Jesus eats this last Passover meal with his disciples is that the religious leaders of Jerusalem are trying to kill him. So when he teaches during his last supper, he relates it to his upcoming death. And there's a connection between them trying to kill him and what he says in the Last Supper. And the reason they're trying to kill him is because he has challenged their authority. And if they lose their authority, they lose their power. They lose their grip over the political situation in Jerusalem. There's no such thing as religion without politics in Bible days. The Jewish elite who ran Jerusalem and ran the temple were the mediators between the Jewish nation and Rome. And the Roman Empire, Caesar, gave them a lot of power to rule over their own people in exchange for certain favors. And Jesus has challenged the authority of the religious leaders and they're going to put him to death for that. Also, he has pronounced judgment on the temple. He said the temple is going to be destroyed. If the temple's destroyed, they don't have any place to work. So they're mad at him over that. And he claims to be God's spokesman. So they want to put him to death. And so when we look at the Last Supper, we need to look at it in that context. Now, here's how we're going to divide our teaching today. In verses 1 through 6, this is Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see a conspiracy a plot to arrest and kill Jesus, 1 through 6. Then in verses 7 through 13, we're going to see secret preparation for the Last Supper. Uh, when Jesus prepares for the Supper, he does it very secretively. Okay? And then in verses 14 through 20, we will see how Jesus interprets that Passover meal that he eats. Now these three scenes open up with certain markers that you can you can catch if you look very carefully. Uh, they open up with a reference to time. For example, in verse 1, look how scene number 1 opens. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. See that reference to time? Drew near. That's scene number 1. Look at how scene number 2 opens. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. See, that's a time marker. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Now look at verse 14. Look how scene number 3 opens. When the hour had come. Do you see that? Three scenes. Drew near, then came the day, then the hour came. So let's look at scene number 1. And let's look at verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called... Passover. Passover was one of three pilgrim feasts. These were feasts where 
People from miles around converged on Jerusalem to celebrate certain historical events in Israel's life. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover drew in anywhere between 200,000 to a half a million people into that city. Now I want you to notice something. First I want you to notice in verse 1 the word feast. That tells you what this is all about. This is about eating. Every major Jewish holiday is a feast. It's about eating. What are you going to eat? You're going to eat part of the sacrifice that you make at the temple. Most of it will be burned, but there will be leftovers, and you will eat that food that's been sacrificed at the temple. Notice also the word Passover in verse 1. tells us what this feast was about. It celebrated the angel of death passing over Israel, which allowed the firstborn of the Jewish nation to escape, and which led to the exodus. So you're familiar with that. Notice that the bread is called unleavened bread that they ate. Uh, that was bread without yeast. You know why they ate bread without yeast? Because they were in a hurry to get out of Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so they were eating on the run. That's why it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? And that means that the first Passover feast, right before they left Egypt, was like a fast food dinner. You know, it was quick. Quick. By the time Jesus eats the Passover meal, it will last three or four hours. It was not a uh, meal on the run. It was an all-evening affair. So, when we're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a, an escape from Egypt, we're talking about a feast that is going to be very comfortable and long into the evening. Now, in Jerusalem at this time, uh, the Romans would send extra troops because Passover not only represented Israel's escape from Egyptian bondage, it caused people to think about their present situation and they were under Roman bondage. And it was a very volatile time. And so as a result of that, uh, the Romans would send extra troops into the city just in case there were riots or protests or people began to say, we want to be freed from, from your oppression. Okay? Now look at verse 2. And the chief priest, that's the ones who ran the temple, and the scribes, the interpreters of the law, sought how they might kill him, kill Jesus. They're trying to figure out a way how they can arrest and execute Jesus without causing a riot. Without getting the Roman troops in there with their billy clubs and their horses. So they're trying to figure out a way that they can kill Jesus without causing a big uproar. Because look what it says at the end of verse 2. For they feared the people. They were afraid they would set off a riot of some sort. Now, very interestingly, when you go to verse 3 and 4, we find the power that's behind this attempt to kill Jesus. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he, that's Judas, might betray him, that's Jesus, to them, that's the religious rulers. And so what we have here is we have a conspiracy developing here to kill Jesus. 
Uh, now, this is a real conspiracy. You know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories around that aren't, I think, valid. One is that 9-11 was a conspiracy of very wealthy people in New York, and the guy who owned the Twin Towers wanted the insurance, and believe it or not, there's a JFK conspiracy, the Warren Commission. We don't know whether that was a cons real conspiracy or whether, you know, Oswald, the lone killing, we don't, we'll never know. But we know the death of Jesus, the assassination or execution of Jesus, was a conspiracy because it involves Judas and the religious leaders, one of Jesus' own men. Now, when it says Satan entered Judas, we don't know what that means. How in the world does an angel, a fallen angel, enter a person? Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. But what he wants us to know is this. He wants us to know that behind this death is Satan, the word meaning adversary, the adversary of Jesus and the adversary of Christians. Now the last time we saw Satan, it's very interesting, in the sense that he was moving and he was acting, is back in chapter 3. Do you remember that? Let me show you that to you. Go back to uh, chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather. And this is the temptation of Jesus, remember that? But I just want you to look at one sentence, which is very interesting. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and then it concludes this way. Look at verse 13. This is Luke 4, 13. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke 22 is the opportune time. Because what he tried to do in chapter 4 was get Jesus to ruin his mission. To divert Jesus from his mission. He was not successful, so he just waited for another opportunity. Luke 22 is that other opportunity. He failed to, to divert Jesus from his mission, but he succeeds in using one of Jesus' followers to accomplish Satan's mission. Okay. Now when you go back to Luke 22, I'll show you something interesting. Notice how Judas is described in verse 3. It says he was numbered among the twelve. Do you see that? He was numbered among the twelve. That's a place of honor. Over in verse 37, it talks about Jesus. It said he was numbered among the transgressors. That's a place of dishonor. Think about that. Judas, numbered among the twelve. Place of leadership. Honor. Jesus, numbered among the transgressors. Place of dishonor. Place of shame. A place of sin, in a sense. Okay. Now, look how who, Jesus, uh, who Judas seeks out in this conspiracy. He not only confers with the chief priests, which are the absolute most powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem, but with the captains. Some translations say with the temple uh, police. And that's what the captains were there. They were the temple police. These were, you know, just like Baylor has its own police force. And the police patrol the grounds of Baylor, the temple had its own police force. The Roman soldiers could not step foot on temple grounds. You know why? Because they were Gentiles and they were unclean. Jews would have gone, people of our property. 
Now they did it at times, but not with the Jews' approval. So to make sure that things in the temple stayed stable, they hired their own police force made up of uh, Jewish thugs. And that is who Judas confers with. These are men who are going to protect protect their own turf and protect the power of the religious leaders. And Judas says, hey, I can keep you in power. And he confers with them how he might betray Jesus. And verse 5 says, and they were glad, I guess so. They've been hunting for a way to end this guy's life. And they agreed to give him money. They entered a contract. That word agree is a contractual word. And they said, hey, well, how much do you want? And he said, well, this is what I want. And they probably bartered back and forth. Now, we know from John's Gospel that uh, Judas is called a lover of money. And Jesus has already talked about the love of money in Luke's Gospel back, I think, in chapter 16, where he says, no one can love God and money because you'll either serve one and you'll hate the other. Remember that passage? Well, that's what Judas does. Judas really loves money. He doesn't love his master. He loves money. So he, he makes an agreement. So verse 6 says, And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. He says, well, I know when he's alone. I'm one of the insiders. I'm one of his inside men. I, I know his schedule backwards and forwards. I'm... Uh, I'll make sure that I deliver him to you in solitude. So that's scene number one. Now we come to scene number two. Look at verse seven. This is, these are what we'll call the secret preparations for the Passover meal. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, that's Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us meaning the apostles and Jesus, that we may eat it. Now, this is interesting. We're going to see three of Jesus' apostles. Judas doing one thing, Peter and John do another. They're all doing it in secret. Sort of interesting. Jesus says, now I want you, Peter and John, he doesn't talk to anybody else, I want you to go prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it. Now, this meant they had to go buy a lamb. That meant they had to go to the temple, buy a lamb. They had to offer the lamb. They had to bring it back. They had to prepare the lamb. They had to prepare all the food. They had to arrange the room for the Passover meal. They had to do all these kinds of things. And so verse 9 says, And so they said to him, Well, where do you want us to prepare it? Uh, where should we go? What's the location? Where are we going to eat this meal? They have no idea. And he said, Look, I like this. He said, Behold, you know something's going to happen here. This is not just an ordinary conversation. Behold, that would be like me saying, Now listen here, listen quick, listen carefully. What I'm going to say is important. He said, Listen, listen. We're going to prepare this. Listen, when you've entered the city of Jerusalem, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room 
where I might eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make preparation. There make ready. Now this is a cloak and dagger operation. You see? Uh, there's a lot of mystery and intrigue here. Uh, he sends these two of his absolutely most trusted disciples out. Although I believe Judas was very trusted because he candled what? So these two and Judas, probably the three most trusted disciples that Jesus has. He sends these two out. And he says, when you get into the city, you'll be met by somebody. Not you're going to seek them out. You'll be met by somebody. Now, you've all been to the airport where someone comes, flies into town for a business meeting or for an interview. And the company sends out a chauffeur and a car to meet him at the airport or her at the airport. Now, they've never seen each other. The chauffeur or the businessman. And so the chauffeur stands near the baggage section with a big sign. It says, Mr. Smith. And when Mr. Smith sees that sign, he goes to the chauffeur. The chauffeur leads him to the car, takes him to the place of business. They've never seen each other. That's how an arrangement is. Jesus says, when you get there, there's going to be this guy. Now, let me tell you. He won't have a sign that says Peter and John. Now, what he'll be doing is this guy will be carrying a pitcher of water. Just look around. As soon as you get inside the city, look for a guy with a pitcher of water. That's sort of strange. And just follow him wherever he goes, and he'll lead you to a house and go into that house. Behind him. Don't even talk to him. And when you get there, you'll see the owner of the house, and you'll say, The teacher needs a room to eat the Passover with his disciples. And when you say, The teacher, that'll be a code word, and he'll know who you are. And he'll take you and show you an upper room, and there you prepare the Passover meal. Now, why all this cloak and dagger, this mystery and intrigue? Why is, this, why is Jesus going through this? Uh, because there's a plot to kill him. <laughs> and if they can catch Jesus alone, they can get Jesus going from the Mount of Olives to this upper room all by himself with just a few of his disciples. Uh, he's a dead duck. And so he knows that there's a threat over his head and he has to make these kinds of arrangements. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus sort of prophesied this. He said, oh, in my mind, I see a man with a, you know, a water pot. And, but I don't think that's really what Luke wants us to see here. Okay? I think he wants us to see that this is a secret planning, if that makes sense to you. And I think it does. Now look at verse 13. And so they went and they found it just as he had said, and they prepared the Passover. There is no evidence that they ever go back to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is. They just stay there and they prepare the Passover and get it ready until Jesus and the rest of the crowd show up. So what we have is we have three apostles, three leaders of Jesus' band, one Judas, an agent of Satan, looking out for number one, and Peter and John, agents of Jesus, serving. And that's what Luke wants us to see. And then the third scene is verse 14, which is actually the Passover meal, which we call the Last Supper. And here's what it says. When the hour had come, he sat down, means he arrived, and the twelve 
with them. Now, our Bibles say he sat down. That's not a really a good translation. It's he reclined. They had sofas, couches, and you would recline on one elbow and there'd be tables alongside the sofas and you would eat. This is how the Romans ate. This is how everybody ate during the first century. It was the Greco-Roman way of eating a meal. And so Jesus reclined. He laid on his left elbow and he was eating with his right hand. Or vice versa. So it's not like Da Vinci's Last Supper. Where Jesus is sitting at a table and his disciples on each side. And it's not like the Da Vinci Code either. Remember the Da Vinci Code? Where on Jesus' left is... Mary Magdalene, it's not John, it's Mary Magdalene. That's the whole story. Uh, women didn't recline on couches in the first century. Uh, if they were going to eat, they had to eat in another room or something like that. So this was just Jesus and his twelve apostles. So we know the Da Vinci Code's wrong, and we know that Leonardo da Vinci's picture itself is wrong. So that's how it was. So he would recline, and they would have these sofas or couches... Uh, arranged in a U, like a horseshoe. And that's how it was. And then the tables were brought in the middle of the horseshoe, and they could take food from those tables. So then verse 15 says, And then he said, With fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover meal with you, watch this, before I suffer. Jesus knows he's going to die, and he says, before I die, I want to eat this Passover, this last Passover with you. That's why we can say this is Jesus' last supper. It's the last meal he'll ever eat. And he wants to eat with his disciples. What kind of a meal is it? It's a Passover meal. Okay? Very important that you get that. It's a Passover meal. But what Jesus is going to do, he's going to reinterpret the Passover He's not going to take the traditional Jewish view of what the Passover is all about. He's going to reinterpret it for his church, which he's created. So he says, I have fervently desired to eat the Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I say, look at this, here's the reason. For I say... I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will no longer eat of it, of what? The Passover meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, until what is fulfilled in the kingdom of God? Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's the it? the Passover meal. I will not eat it, the Passover meal, again with you for how long? Until until what? Until it, the Passover meal, is what? Fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That means the Passover meal in and of itself is not complete. It has to be fulfilled. It means that the Passover meal points to something in the future. The Passover meal in the Old Testament was a type. You've heard that word, type, or an example, which 
points to something more significant than itself in the future. The Passover meal is not about the Exodus. Well, I shouldn't say that. It is about the Exodus. But that's not all it's about. It's about another Exodus. The Passover meal was not just escaping from Imperial Egypt under the leadership of Pharaoh. It's about escaping another world power. And the Passover meal will be completed, will reach its fulfillment or its goal when, does it say? In the kingdom of God. You see that? In the kingdom of God. What does it mean the Passover meal will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God? Because the Passover meal will give way to the messianic banquet. Or the what we call the wedding feast of what? The lamb. See? And uh, it's going to be a Passover feast, but it's going to be about a different lamb. And one day we'll all gather around and we'll eat with Jesus. And he will host the meal. And it won't be about that we were delivered from Egypt. It will be about we were delivered from the world systems and the kingdoms of this world. Because the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of God's Christ. God's Messiah. Now I want you to notice something. In verse 16, he says, I will not eat of it, notice the next word, until. You see that? That means he'll eat it again. Now, what's going to happen after he eats this meal, when he goes to the garden? What are they going to do there? Are they going to arrest him? Is Judas going to give him a kiss? Will he be put on the cross and die? Will he be killed? Will he be executed? Yeah, he will be executed, but guess what he says he'll do? He says he's going to eat it again. That must mean that death isn't going to be the end for Jesus. Jesus sees something for himself beyond death. Not that he's going to heaven, but that his body is going to be raised and he is going to inherit a kingdom. And he sees that uh, not only will he be raised and inherit a kingdom and he will eat a meal, but he says he's going to eat it with them in the kingdom. That means they're going to be raised. And guess what? You're going to die, but you're going to be raised. See? So who has the last word here? The Roman authorities? The Jewish authorities? The temple priests? The captains of the temple? Ah, we got rid of him! Ah, that's it. We got rid of him. That rabble rouse. We've kept our power. Oh yeah? How long? Not really long because in a few days Jesus is going to be raised and guess who will have the power then? Do you think you can kill him again after he's raised? Who's won? Temple guards or Jesus? Jesus. Yeah. How long will your kingdom last? Oh, just as long as he lets it because one day he's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to last forever. So Jesus says, I'm going to eat again. And by saying that, he's basically preaching to his disciples a message against imperial Rome. And he's saying their system, which is based on force. The Jewish leaders said, we know the will of God. We know the will of God. We'll bring it to pass by force. Get rid of this man. Oh, force doesn't work. <laughs> Human force does not produce God's will. God's will is produced when you are humble and you're willing to die. And when Jesus died on the cross, let me ask you something. When Jesus died on the cross, 
Did Rome win or did God win? Yeah, even on the cross, God won. You see, because it was Christ's death that was going to bring about the defeat of death, and it was going to bring about the defeat of Rome. So look at verse 17. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. It's a typical Jewish thanksgiving or prayer over a glass, which is, Blessed are you, Lord, our God and King of the universe, who created the, the vine, fruit of the vine. He took the cup, he gave thanks. He said, take this cup, one cup, and divide it amongst yourselves. One cup, they didn't have a whole bunch of cups, one cup, and each one of you take a drink. Why? Look at verse 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the cup of the vine until what? The kingdom of God comes. And look in verse 16. He says, I will not eat until, and look in verse 18, I will not drink until, I will not eat again until the kingdom comes, I will not drink again until the kingdom comes. That's why we say this is Jesus' last supper. Okay? And by drinking this, they um, show solidarity with Jesus. He, in a sense, lifts this cup up and he passes it around. He says, oh, you drink it from that one cup. And then he drinks it and they show solidarity with Jesus. And then what does he say? Look at verse 19. He took the bread and he gave thanks, similar prayer. He broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <coughs> now, at this point, Jesus starts to interpret the Passover in a different light. What he does, he takes a loaf of bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Now, think about this. In the Passover, what, what does a typical Passover service look like? The father has the meal prepared and the little child says, Dad, what's all this about? And the child says, Oh, this is about the day that God delivered us out of Egypt. And the bitter herbs represent our suffering. And they go through all of it. And how about the lamb? Oh, that's the lamb that was shed. Its blood was put on the post of the house and the death angel. He doesn't talk about any of that. Notice what he talks about. A piece of bread. They didn't talk about bread. Now, they might have said, oh, this bread represents us eating in haste. Jesus puts all this emphasis on bread in verse 19. He says, this is my body. Now, we know it wasn't literally, literally his body, don't we? How do you know that? Because his literal body was sitting there talking to them. That's how you know that. <clears throat> now, look at this. He says, which is given for you in verse 19. Given means offered. For you means on your behalf. It speaks of sacrifice. His body is going to be sacrificed. Now, I know what's going to happen to his body on Good Friday. What's going to happen? We put on a cross. He's going to die. He means, I'm going to die for you. When they take me and kill me, my death is on your behalf. He doesn't go into a lot of explanation here, but he's speaking of his death. Now, look what else he says in verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. What do you mean, do this? He means when you eat it again in the future and you eat this bread, you break the bread and you eat it, I want you to remember me. 
Now it won't be there, but when you do it, when you eat it, remember me. Well, what are we going to remember about Jesus? What do you? Well, let me ask you. Now a year has passed, it's the next Passover, and there's Peter and John and the apostles. Judas isn't there, but they said, let's break some bread. They said, oh, yes, but we're supposed to remember Jesus. What were they to remember about him? See, this is, remembering has to do, uh, it has to, what, he doesn't say what it, what it means, does he? He just says, redo this in remembrance of me. Remember his teaching? Remember that he was killed as a criminal? Remember that he rose from the dead? He's not real, particular, not real clear on this, but he says when you do it, it should be with remembering me. Now verse 20 he says, likewise he took the cup. Now this is a second or a third cup. Passover meals often had three and four cups. <clears throat> Likewise, he took the cup. Now look at this next phrase in verse 20. When did he take the cup? After supper. Between the breaking of the bread and picking up this cup came a supper, a full meal. That was the last supper. Breaking of bread a full meal, and now he picks up a cup. What was the meal that they ate? Typical Passover meal. But he didn't talk about those things on the table, lambs and bitter herbs and all that. Verse 20, after he took the cup after the supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now was the cup a new covenant or did the cup represent a new covenant? Well, it represented a new covenant. Uh, what is a covenant? Uh, well, it's an agreement. <clears throat> what is a new covenant? Well, it's different than an old covenant. What was the old covenant? It was the covenant that God made with Moses after he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. If you look over at Deuteronomy, or Exodus 24, rather, uh, you'll see that God made a covenant with his people that was sealed by blood. And Jesus says, this cup, and this wine that's in this cup represents a new covenant that will be established in my blood. God is establishing a new covenant with his people. Just as he established the old covenant with his people in the Old Testament, he's establishing a new covenant. It will be established through Christ's blood, which means blood that is spilled as a result of death. And he says this at the end of verse 20, which is shed for you, again, which means which is spilled out on your behalf. So Christ is the mediator of the covenant, and it is on behalf of his people. Now, who is there? Who is in that room right there? Is Judas Iscariot in that room? Yes, there's 12 of them. Jesus said, I'm shedding my blood for you. How many of them? 12 of them. And yet one of them is a betrayer. This is why, this, if you look at Scripture, you just look at the verses in Scripture, it looks like Christ's death is a universal death. It's on behalf of everyone. It's not uh, a limited atonement. It is a, it is a unlimited atonement in that sense. So he says, the new covenant which is shed for you or on your behalf. And uh, of course, over in 1 Corinthians, Paul 
quotes this verse and he adds, and Jesus said, and when you drink it, do this also in remembrance of me. Remember that? So every time that we have the Lord's Supper, there's a sense, and we're, we're following these instructions right here that are found in Jesus' last supper. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we eat the Lord's Supper with anticipation that one day we will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus when the kingdom arrives in its fullness. There is a sense in which the Last Supper, if I put the Last Supper right here, the Last Supper is a link between the first Passover and the Messianic banquet in the kingdom. The Passover meal, the Last Supper, links the first Passover in Moses' day with the Messianic kingdom, Messianic banquet in the kingdom of God. And the Lord's Supper, that's the supper that we eat. Put the Lord's Supper now in the middle. The Lord's Supper links Jesus' last supper with the Messianic banquet. And so we see in a sense that our Lord's Supper is a link between what Jesus does right here in this passage and the Messianic meal which is to come. And when we eat it, we get a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is going to be like. In fact, when we eat the Lord's Supper now, there's a sense in which we partake of the kingdom already in just a little form. Because when we... Now, I have to say, in most of our churches, all we do is just eat the bread and the, the wine. In Jesus' day, they had the bread, a big meal, and then the wine. <laughs> it was much more fun uh, than when we did. <laughs> and if we did it the way Jesus and the early church did it, we would get a glimpse of what the kingdom's going to be like, because it's going to be a great place. <laughs> so, and maybe we need to start thinking along those lines. <clears throat> so... At this point, I'm going to stop because of time, but let me just read verses uh, 21 and 22 for you, and we'll sort of pick up at that point. Uh, verse 21, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of the betrayer is with me at the table. Now, that means that the death that Jesus is describing in verses 14 through 20 are going to be brought about because of this guy sitting right there. And he means it for evil. He and the Jewish leaders are going to get rid of Jesus, get rid of this troublemaker. They are doing it to attain their goals. But Jesus says, I'm going to die and the guy that's going to betray me is right here at this table, but God's going to do it to reach his goal, which is ultimately the kingdom of God. And truly the Son of Man goes, verse 22, as it has been determined. This isn't a plan B. God's plan A was that Jesus would die. God has determined this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was crucified before the foundation of what? The world. This was always God's plan. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. That's one of the great things of all time. God uses human means to fulfill His plan. He wants to judge Israel. Guess what He does? Uses Assyria. He wants to judge Judah. He could have sent fire down from heaven. He uses human means. He uses Babylon. 
They, they fulfill His plan. They carry out His plan. And yet, what they did was evil. Ah, we'll destroy Israel. We'll destroy Judah. See, they're destroying Judah and Israel for their own purposes. So they can have power. Ah, but there's another perspective. There's a divine perspective. God's just using them as little pawns. And what they meant for evil, God is using for His purpose. And it's the same with Jesus' death. The Jewish leaders and Judas, ah, now we've gotten rid of it. And Jews said, now i got my 30 pieces of silver. Met my goal for the week. And Jesus said, well, actually, you met my goal for the week. And my goal was to have him crucified at the end of this week. And at the beginning of the week, raise him up, set him in my right hand as the exalted king. And he will rule from heaven until he makes his enemies his footstool. And guess who one of his enemies is? You. And then he'll come again and he'll set up the kingdom of God on earth. And so that's where we'll pick up uh, at verse 21 next week. We'll find out the rest of Jesus' teaching. And then we'll see his arrest in the garden and his crucifixion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our new class. We thank you for the excitement that we have. We know that there's adjustments that have to be made, and that's just the way it is. Help us all to be relaxed, not uptight. Help us to realize that we're here for one reason. That's to worship the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death, who guarantees us eternal life, who will rule for time and eternity. He's ruling now even though people don't realize it. He's their king whether they submit to him or not. And one day the entire government will be upon his shoulders and he will rule over the earth for a thousand years. Lord, we thank you for these promises that we have. Help us to realize that this is our hope. Uh, we uh, Help us to get our eyes off the little things and get our eyes on the big picture. Now, Lord, help us to go forth and remember you. Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.